from WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today we talk with documentary filmmaker Laura Poitras and artist Nan Golden. Poitras' Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, is about Golden's life and work and the protests she led at museums that accepted funding from the Sackler family. Their company, Purdue Pharma, manufactured and unscrupulously marketed OxyContin. Also, Brad Meldow, one of the most acclaimed and influential jazz pianists of his generation, joins us at the piano for music and conversation. Meldow has often covered Beatles songs, but his new album is all about the Beatles. It's called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow plays the Beatles. And Maureen Corrigan reviews Up With The Sun, Thomas Mallon's new historical novel about showbiz strivers in New York and Hollywood. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. When my guest Nan Golden started taking her photographs to galleries back in the late 1970s, the photos were considered too transgressive, too raw, too weird. But they were photos of her friends, people who were considered social outcasts, like drag queens and other queer people, and people in the underground art and music scene. She took pictures of them at parties, at home, alone in bed, or having sex. She captured intimacy and despair. Over time, her work was acknowledged as groundbreaking and was added to the permanent collections of major museums, including the Guggenheim and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Those were some of the museums she targeted when she led a campaign to get art institutions to take down the Sackler family name and stop accepting their money. The Sacklers founded Purdue Pharma, the company infamous for manufacturing OxyContin and deceptively marketing it in ways that led to the opioid epidemic. The Sacklers made large philanthropic donations to many museums, often getting a wing or wings named after the family in return. To Golden, it was a way of laundering blood money. She founded the group PAIN, an acronym for Prescription Addiction Intervention Now, which led anti-Sackler die-ins and other protests at museums. Those protests were a major factor in getting institutions like the Met, the Guggenheim, and the Louvre, which also showed her work, to remove the Sackler name, although the Sackler name remains on two of the nine galleries at the Met that bore the name. Golden became addicted to OxyContin after it was prescribed while she was recovering from surgery. The new Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, is about Golden's anti-Sackler campaign and her life and work. It was directed by Laura Poitras, who is also with us. Poitras is best known for directing the documentary's Risk, about Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, and Citizen Four, about Edward Snowden, who handed over classified NSA documents to Poitras and journalist Glenn Greenwald. Nan Golden, Laura Poitras, welcome to Fresh Air. It's a really remarkable film. Congratulations on it, and congratulations on the Oscar nomination. Um, So, Laura, let's start with you. After making films about war, the release of secret government documents. Why did you want to make a film about Nan Golden? Well, you know, I've known and admired Nan's um, artwork for for really so long, as long as I've been making films. And when she started doing these protests uh, inside the museums, I, I was blown away by it. And um, uh, she actually began the film. She started um, documenting the the protests. And then we happened to have a chance meeting, um, and she'd been documenting it for over a year. And she told me that she was looking for other people to join the project. And... Um, 
uh, that's how I got involved. And it was for me, it was a no-brainer. I mean, I was just somebody of her position in the art world using her power in this way to call for accountability for me was, um, you know, very in line with my previous work. Nan, can you describe the protests at the Guggenheim and at the Met? Because they look like art pieces. I mean, they look like performance pieces. Yeah, they're very performative and sexy. We were after sexy actions that the media would love. And the first one, we made a bottle with a fake prescription that said OxyContin on it, prescribed by Richard Sackler, side effect death. And we threw a thousand of those bottles into the water around the Temple of Dender, which was the Sackler's jewel. And other museum goers, even a child, got involved in it. We did a die-in. And then our signs were ripped down, and we left, screaming, we'll be back. And the Guggenheim was the most beautiful. We threw prescriptions, fake prescriptions, that had quotes from Richard Sackler and about five different prescriptions saying things like, we have to hammer on the abusers, they're the culprits, and we're going to make a blizzard of prescriptions that will bury the competition. So we saw it as a blizzard of prescriptions and that we were the people being buried. And we also did a die-in there. It was a really beautiful action. It was beautiful because, I mean, visually beautiful. You were, the people from your group, Pain, were on the upper levels of the atrium and started dropping these prescriptions into the center of the Guggenheim, and they kind of like floated down like, yeah. like snowflakes in a blizzard. Exactly. Except the, the more gentle than in a blizzard, but there were so many of them. It was really, it was quite pretty. Yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> um, so it really was like a, an, an art piece in an art museum protesting um, the Sackler family. But even though I'm an artist, I can't take credit that I designed these actions. They were very, very collaborative with the group. One person would have an idea, and then it would roll to the next person. And that's how we created these actions. Most of the people in your group, Pain, are younger than you. You, being a little older, lived through the AIDS epidemic, and you lost many friends in it. Did you learn things from the ACT UP group that protested the lack of medical attention and funding for AIDS research and the lack of government attention? Um, did you learn things from ACT UP's protest techniques? Yes, they were my model. I was present during ACT UP. I went to some of their actions and a few of their meetings. Unfortunately, I didn't get fully involved. But also, I was making my work, and a lot of it was about people who were living and dying from AIDS, and the people in ACT UP supported my work, unlike a lot of photography that was being done of showing people as AIDS victims. The stigma for the AIDS phobia and the stigma was incredible for people living with AIDS. And so work that was positive was important. And I learned everything about doing performative actions and die-ins. And sometimes some of the older members of ACT UP that are still alive would come to meetings. Laura, as somebody who directed the film and didn't participate actively in the 
protests other than filming them. How much do you attribute the success of taking down the Sackler name from many major museums to the work of Nan Golden and her group Payne? Well, I mean, it absolutely wouldn't have happened without their work. Um, and I think, and that's not just my opinion, I mean, there's the um, investigative journalists like Patrick Redden Keefe and Barry Meyer who've been reporting about the the Sackler family and the scourge of OxyContin for so many years, and, and yet nothing was really happening in terms of accountability for the Sacklers themselves. And it really wasn't until Nan and Payne started doing these actions that it sort of crystallized. And it became, you know, like untenable, and, and that name became, um, you know, associated with the, the, the kind of death toll that it has brought, that their drug has brought. So I yeah it just it simply would it the name still would be there today you would walk in if if Nan hadn't stood up I I'm confident that the Sackler name would still be on the museums. The other thing is we were after that thanks Laura, and I think it's true. Um, later during COVID, there was a bankruptcy case where the Sacklers had shed their company of all the money and put it offshore like ten million dollars. $10 billion, excuse me. And the company went bankrupt. And we stepped into the bankruptcy case, a group of us, not paying, it was called OxyJustice. And it was myself and five parents who had lost their children to OxyContin overdoses. And we made a lot of noise in court. And I was also like informing people in the museums about the case and keeping them updated on that. Also, right before the Met took down the name in November 2021, we wrote a letter, Laura and myself and another person, to the board talking about the necessity of taking down the name. And 77 of the greatest living artists signed it. It was incredible. And I think that had a lot of power in the board meetings. So as part of the bankruptcy process, legally, the, a federal judge required the Sackler family to listen to testimony from people who had either become addicted to OxyContin or who had loved ones who were, and some of them had lost their loved ones to overdoses. Um, Nan, you were one of the people who testified uh, directly to the Sacklers. This was over over Zoom. But this was your opportunity to actually talk with them and address them directly. What message did you want to send them? Uh, it would have been my dream to have them in the room. Uh, having it on Zoom wasn't as powerful. Some of the other people that testified were incredibly moving. Uh, I held back a little on the advice of a lawyer, and I wish I hadn't. But I called for criminal charges against them. They looked completely dead, both of them, that were on camera. Teresa and David, they hardly blinked. You got addicted to Oxy yourself after being prescribed it for surgery. I believe it was wrist surgery. Yes. Um, and that led to using like many, many pills of Oxy a day, and then that led to fentanyl, and, and you nearly overdosed and died. I mean, you overdosed, but you didn't die. Um, Incredibly. So just tell us a little bit how the oxy led to fentanyl. Fentanyl is in all the drug supply now. 
and it's moving the needle on the overdose crisis to now there's about a million people who have died in America from overdose since 1999. A million people. I got addicted very quickly to Oxy after it was prescribed, and I upped my dose very quickly, and it took over my life. I became completely isolated, and at the end, I couldn't get Oxy, and somebody sold me something that I thought was heroin, and it was fentanyl. But it, fentanyl is in all the drugs now. My guesser, artist Nan Golden, whose life, work, and protests are the subjects of the new Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Also with us is the film's director, Laura Poitras. We'll hear more of the conversation after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. Let's get back to my interview with artist Nan Golden, whose photographs are in museums around the world, and Laura Poitras, director of a new Oscar-nominated documentary about Golden called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Golden and Poitras are also producers of the film. It's about Golden's life and work and her campaign to get museums and galleries to remove the Sackler name from their walls. That name was on the walls in acknowledgment of the family's major financial donations. The Sackler family owned Purdue Pharma, which manufactured OxyContin and marketed it with deceptive practices that helped lead to the opioid epidemic. Golden is one of the many people who became addicted to the drug after having it prescribed for pain following surgery. Laura, um, directing this movie, this very powerful movie about Nan's life, how would you describe what made Nan's photos groundbreaking? Oh, wow. I, I mean, where to even start? I mean, uh, she's, I think the practice, the way that she worked, she she documents her life, the people that she's um, deeply involved with. And there's a sort of um, uh, relationship that, that actually you can see and you can feel in, in the images um, representing, you know, I mean, Nan and I would have these conversations, you know, I would, I would use the word that people were sort of resisting mainstream American. She was like, no, 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 we just didn't care. Like normative society was not interesting to us. Um, I think the representation of queer identity, queer sexuality, you know, it was just all groundbreaking. Um, the way in which she redefined, I think, storytelling with images, um, both within the frame, there's just the sense of mise-en-scene, the lighting, um, the the sense of characters, you want to know people, you want to be there, and then with the slideshows, how she juxtaposed the images with the music and her editing, you know, it's it's all so cinematic. Um, what's so also so amazing about Nan's work is that different people relate to it differently, depending on what they bring to it. Some people will, you know, talk about like how it looks at the difficulty of you know, relationships and um, gender. Um, so, so many ways in which it's um, been groundbreaking for, for people. And, you know, people come up to me and say, you know, Nan helped me come out. They looked at her photographs and it made them feel okay to say that, that they're queer. Nan, how would you describe how your photos were different from the other photography shows of the time and what made your work groundbreaking? I think the wrong things are kept secret. So the fact that I put out my work, it was not accepted as art at the beginning because it was so personal. And I came up in a time of black and white, vertical photographs about light. And then there was the period in the 80s when people were using appropriated images. So my work didn't really fit in anywhere. 
And like Laura said, it's the way people respond to the work is very important to me. I show myself battered, and in different countries, women have come up to me and said, I couldn't show myself, I couldn't talk about it until I saw these images. And that's what the work is really about. That's really my motive in showing the work. Well, let me pick it up from there. There's two like pretty famous photos of you recovering from being battered. One of them is a photograph, a self-portrait of you with one eye with a thick bandage over it. And the other is a little later in your healing when you have black, uh, two black eyes. Um, so why did you want to photograph your own healing, your own, your own wounds and your own healing? So that I wouldn't go back to them. It's that simple. Most women, at least in those days, something like 90% of women went back to the men who battered them. And it was very important to me to have a record of what really happened. So, and that's been sort of the motivating force of my whole life, my work, is to make records that nobody could re-edit or deny. And that was the same with this work. What's it like for you to look at those photos now? Uh, it's the same as so many photos of my history. They're kind of frozen in time, those images. Often they've become part of my history, and it's the same way I keep the people who I've lost alive in my studio because I'm looking at pictures of them all the time, and so they're still alive for me. But I also really realize the magnitude of their deaths. Nan, I want to ask you something else about your early work. Um, some of your early work was about your friends who were drag queens. Um, what did you want those photos to say? Did you want them to look theatrical, or did you want them to look just like day-to-day -day life? Um, I moved in with the queens because I worshipped them, basically. I found them some of the most incredible people in the world, that they lived without concern about the opinions of the rest of the world, including the gay community and lesbians. Everybody stigmatized them. And I found them so beautiful and so moving and powerful in their lives. And it was really the first body of work I did. I was photographing them because I wanted to put them on the cover of Vogue. I wanted, they wanted to be super, they were my supermodels and I wanted them to be supermodels in the world. And I took pictures every day and took them to a drugstore and brought back snapshots and collected piles of snapshots, which sometimes they ripped them up if they didn't like them. Did you take it personally if they ripped, if they ripped it up? No, that was their right. And generally, I've tried to maintain that right to all the people I photograph over 50 years. Not always, but I try to. The right to take their work out. Nan, during the period you were taking photos for what became the Ballad of Sexual Dependency, your slideshow, you spent a few months working as a dancer at a bar in New Jersey, and you were in New Jersey instead of New York. In New York, you would have had to be bottomless, and in Jersey, you only had to be topless, if I have that right. And then after that, you ended up working at a bar in Manhattan that was run by 
a woman who is trying to help former sex workers get out of the business. Uh, and you became a bartender there. Um, what was it like being the bartender there? What was the clientele like, and what did you have to deal with? Uh, it was run by an incredible woman who was also very political. And she hired both women that had been in the sex trade and eventually women from downtown, artists. And the first couple of years I worked there, I worked at night, and then I went to an after-hours that her partner owned. So I would work from about 8 at night till 8 in the morning, and I loved it. I was fascinated by everyone. It was Times Square when Times Square was Times Square before it became Disneyland. And it was one of the most dangerous places in the world. And there were gang members, there were artists, there were mostly working-class people who worked around the bar. People came from New York Review of Books because she cooked amazing lunches and was really the only place you could eat in Times Square at that time. So it was a real community, and that was the first few years. And then I got, and I met Brian there, and after I got battered, I was scared to be around men in that way. Um, and But also, the last few years I started working in the daytime, and I, at the beginning I wanted to hear everybody's life story, and then after a few years I was, didn't want to hear anything. I just wanted to hear what kind of beer the person wanted. Can you talk a little bit, a little bit about the fear of, of men you developed after being battered? I was afraid to be around a group of men, a crowd of men. Uh, they felt very large and dangerous to me, whether or not they were. It was just a phenom- you know, a, a sense of self in the world had become damaged, and the world was risky. Did you bring your camera to the bar? Sometimes. Not so much. There's there's pictures from the bar. I'm curious, like, what you wanted from the bar and what... The bar what... became my life, mm-hmm. and it was partially because I thought the downtown art world... I wanted to get away from the downtown art world. It was the beginning of people starting to go to galleries, 1980 to 85, and it was... I felt critical of the downtown art world, and I thought that Times Square was real life because it wasn't classist, and there were people who were really struggling to survive, and I admired that greatly, and I liked the community. I want to thank you for talking with us. Nan Golden, Laura Poitras, thank you, and good luck at the Oscars. Thanks so much. (laughs) Thank you. Nan Golden's life, art, and protests against the Sackler family are the subjects of the new Oscar-nominated documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Laura Poitras directed the film. Poitras and Golden are also producers of the film. People have been talking about excerpts from the Extraordinary AIDS Diaries kept by writer Thomas Mallon, which were published in The New Yorker this past December. Mallon is also known for his historical fiction, novels like Watergate, a title that needs no explanation. 
Mallon's latest historical novel, Up With the Sun, takes readers into the entertainment worlds of New York and Hollywood. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has a review. Google the real-life actor Dick Coleman, and you'll see one of those faces that just misses. Here's how Thomas Mallon, in his dazzling new historical novel, Up With the Sun, describes the young Coleman's looks when he made his stage debut in 1951. He had a fine, glossy New York kisser, the kind that made you wonder, Italian? Jewish? A less perfect Tony Curtis, magnetic and mischievous. Coleman is one of two central characters in Up With the Sun, He was an actor, mostly on stage, from the early 1950s into the 70s. For a time, he was even a comedy protege of Lucille Balls and starred for one season in the TV sitcom Hank. Forgettable is an adjective that attaches itself to Coleman's career like dust to a ceiling fan, but his violent death in 1980 propelled him into a different kind of fame. Coleman was shot and killed, along with his male lover, by three robbers in his Manhattan townhouse. That townhouse doubled as a showroom for his antiques business, which he called Possessions of Prominence. For Malin, that preposterously bloated name reveals something essentially off-putting about Kalman's personality. As Malin imagines him, Kalman is just too much, too aggressively ingratiating with casting directors and powerful stars like Lucille Ball. Up With the Sun is a novel about showbiz strivers and a certain slice of gay life in mid to late 20th century America. Malin's other main character here is his sometime narrator, a wry and sweet gay man named Matt Leonetto, who's a musical accompanist on several of the shows Coleman appears in. In Malin's imagining, Matt visits Coleman on the evening of his death. Curiously, the stingy Coleman gives Matt a piece of costume jewelry, which turns out to be, in Alfred Hitchcock's famous term, the MacGuffin that holds the secret to the motive for Coleman's murder. Throughout his writing career, Malin has perfected the art of immersing readers in times past without making us feel like we're strolling through a simulacrum like Disneyland's Main Street USA. Unlike his anti-hero Dick Coleman, Malin never lays it on too thick. For instance, Malin has an expert's fine appreciation for the mundane language of the period— He has Kalman exclaim at one point, How about that? When was the last time you heard anyone utter that old phrase? The celebrities who populate this novel are mostly bygone B-listers, like Kay Ballard and Dolores Gray, as well as the beloved old Turner Movie Classics host Robert Osborne. Lest the atmosphere get too nostalgic, too maudlin, Malin's signature wit remains crisp as a kettle chip. 
He clearly has a blast, for example, making up a bad newspaper review of Coleman's overacting, in which the fictional critic comments, Mr. Coleman probably put sugar in his saccharin. Good line. Malin's best historical novels, and this is one of them, are haunted by a sharp awareness of the transiency of things. So it is that fame and the magic of even the greatest of performances, such as Judy Garland's 1961 comeback show at Carnegie Hall, are only momentary. Coleman is in the audience at that show, along with fading Hollywood stars and about a thousand teary-eyed gay men. The also-gay but disdainfully dry-eyed Coleman thinks to himself that whatever was broken in these guys was reaching toward and sparking whatever was broken in her. Time moves on, and Judy and her fans vanish. Whole worlds are wiped away. This sweeping novel takes readers up to the early days of the AIDS epidemic, an epidemic Malin himself lived through. A couple of months ago, the New Yorker published excerpts of the diaries a young Thomas Malin kept while he was living in New York as the gay cancer was ravaging that city. Those diary entries are immediate and devastating, as well as improbably and mercifully witty. As up with the sun nears its end, we readers realize AIDS is waiting in the wings, which makes the time we spend, even with the entertaining yet obnoxious likes of Malin's Dick Coleman, all the more precious. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Up With the Sun by Thomas Mallon. Coming up, jazz pianist Brad Meldow joins us at the piano for music and conversation. His new album is called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow plays the Beatles. This is Fresh Air Weekend. We play a lot of music by jazz pianist Brad Meldow on our show in the breaks and at the end of the show. Well, today we have a real treat. Brad Meldow went to the WNYC studios in New York to sit down at their piano for an interview and some music. He spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. Here's Sam. Brad Meldow is one of the most influential and acclaimed jazz pianists living today. A recent talk of the town item in The New Yorker said that he is, quote, arguably the greatest working jazz pianist, top five for sure, unquote. His many recordings feature a wide range of jazz and American popular song standards, but he's also known to interpret music that lies outside the typical jazz catalog, playing songs by Radiohead, Nirvana, Nick Drake, and Pink Floyd. In particular, he's had a long relationship with the music of the Beatles. Looking back at his dozens of albums, Beatles songs are peppered throughout, like Blackbird, Martha My Dear, She's Leaving Home, and others. But now for the first time, Meldow has a record of all Beatles songs. Well, except for maybe a David Bowie tune snuck in at the end. The album is called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow plays the Beatles. It was recorded live in Paris in 2020. Meldow's most common musical platform has been his trio, but he's recorded many solo albums and collaborated with musicians such as Josh Redman, Pat Metheny, and Chris Thiele, just to name a few. On his 2018 album called After Bach, he plays pieces from Bach's well-tempered clavier, as well as his own compositions inspired by them. 
He's very busy touring, so we were lucky to get some time with him while he was in New York, doing a week of gigs at the Village Vanguard, the historic jazz club. Meldale also has a memoir coming out this March called Formation, Building a Personal Canon Part 1, which recounts a difficult childhood and his development as an artist. Well, Brad Meldale, welcome to Fresh Air. Thanks for having me. So in 2018, you had done a, a concert of Bach for a concert hall in Paris, and they asked you to come back for 2020, but they wanted you to do uh, just the Beatles songs. Were you enthusiastic about that idea? I was a little apprehensive at first, um, but I had a lot of time on my hands because it was uh, just kind of right in the middle of the lockdown. So I thought, well, this would be um, something exciting to jump into. Um, it was also interesting. They What they did was they programmed a series of concerts with various artists, and they um, played the whole Beatles repertoire. So everybody, everybody played, everybody picked different tunes. So somebody covered Revolution Number no. 9 somehow. I was wow. always curious how that went. <laughs> yeah. You slightly favor Paul McCartney songs in this album, um, and I think Paul McCartney is known for writing very strong melodies. Do you think that's why you like those songs? I think very strong melodies, but um, uh, kind of to make a weird comparison, what I get from Schubert um, is these simple melodies um, under with, with this... Um, harmony under it, so beautiful. So I, I think Paul also really is a is a very subtle harmonist. Um, and and uh, so, yeah, definitely both of those things. Can you give an ex- example of what you mean by his harmonies? Um, well, it's not on the record, but it always comes to mind, you know, maybe because everybody knows it, but just what he does with Blackbird, which I've played a lot over the years. Um, one thing he likes to do is what you call in classical music, maybe you'd call it a pedal point. It's something you find in... Uh, in Bach and Brahms a lot, where there's one one note that goes through different chords, and it's the same note. Um, and in this case, uh, he's getting that from an open G string on the guitar. So you have this beautiful harmony that's moving around, but always with that G in the middle of it. And that's always there. So that note's like a home note that's that's throughout the piece. Yeah, yeah, and it's very it, and and it's grounding and and the way it relates to everything uh, it sort of ties it. It's also something uh, in another uh, that Thelonious Monk loved to do on something like Think of One, where the F is in everything. This is. And he has that a lot, you know, on on, on different tunes of his. So w- why did you pick the song Your Mother Should Know? Whew. Yeah, I just I just love it, and it, it's it's just a great example of these kind of you know miniatures that that, that Paul wrote the, these short little uh, songs that that have a, 
very specific emotional world, and, and then you're in and out of there in a couple minutes, and um, it sort of leaves leaves you hanging, you know. And it, like it, can, it and, and it's um, it's wistful, uh, which is, is an emotion I get from 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 Paul a lot. Kind of sad, happy, happy, sad. Well, would you play a little bit of his for us? Sure. That's great. Thanks so much for doing that. <laughs> kind of random. <laughs> I tried to pack a lot in. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that actually answers my next question. I was wondering how much of these are arranged that you would be playing the same all the time, but the way you just play that now is a lot different than the version on the album. Yeah, yeah. I did think about that a lot. And in the case of that one, I hewed quite closely to the arrangement as they had it. And And one fun thing about this record was it was sort of a an orchestrational challenge. Um, there's so much complexity uh, to their music in all these different instruments and things happening. Um, and then trying to bring that all onto the piano was a, was a fun challenge. And then some imp- improvising in there, kind of short, but they're great chords, you know. And then this very strange interlude. And then it's just over, and it's so many, so many elements there all at once in a couple minutes. You know, a lot of Paul McCartney songs sound like they could be from a, like a, a different era, and I think they harken back to like the music of his parents. Like his dad was a, a swing band leader, and you actually you say that you say this in a good way, but some of the Beatles songs sound frumpy to you. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I use that that you know sort of in a, in an endearing way. Um, there's a swing feeling in there. Um, but it's this kind of wistful, humorous thing uh, that that Paul brings to it, which is no doubt, uh, like you said, the music that he heard, I think, when he was growing up, and he said that in some interviews I've heard. You have a memoir coming out in March called Formation, and it's the story of your youth and development as an artist. It's very personal, and it's it's a pretty distressing read. Um, you felt like an outsider a lot of your youth, in part because you were adopted, uh, you, but you were also you were bullied as a kid. You were sexually groomed by your high school principal, and the traumas of your childhood led led you to feel alienated as a young adult, confused about your sexuality, and and as you say, filled with self-loathing, for which you sought relief in alcohol and drugs, eventually heroin, which almost led to your death. Why at this point in your life did you decide to write this book and and publish it? She is pretty heavy when you hear it all back like that. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, it's all in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it had been sort of this big blob on a hard drive for at least 15 years. And there were pieces of it there uh, about some of um, the kind of p- 
political slash musical discussion. There were a couple of the memories. Um, so I, I knew I had a book in there somewhere, but I think for whatever reason, it took kind of half a lifetime later past the actual events to get the story right. And the way that's played out for me as a musician is that I think in, in some very mysterious way, a, a lot of those really difficult experiences made me the musician um, that I am. You know, for instance, this kind of loneliness and alienation that I experienced. Um, I, I think, and I don't like to analyze myself too much, but I think there's a kind of something that I can get to, for instance, in playing a ballad uh, and, and sort of going in this interior zone that's informed by, you know, experiences that I, that I wouldn't have asked for, you know, at the time. So when you were in high school, there were all these cliques and you didn't really feel like you fit into a lot of them. There was a jazz clique, but, but there was a lot of, you were dealing with a lot of bullying, but you fell into um, a group of older musicians, jazz musicians, who would hire you on to to go to weddings and play at parties. And then you actually even had like a, a I think a regular gig at a club in Hartford called the 880. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, and with these older musicians, you kind of found a community. What was it like hanging out with all these old guys? It was really fun. You know, there was one in particular, uh, Larry Denatali, um, who's a drummer who gave me um, and also Joel Fromm, who's a, a fantastic uh, tenor saxophonist, and another guy, Pat Zimmerly now, who's a, um, a classical composer. He gave us all um, a chance. Um, you know, we were just really beginning, and he gave us a gig at the 880, uh, and he mentored us, you know, and, and that's that's really important. Um and and he was my first model for a, a, a bohemian jazz musician, and I loved it. Um, you know, bohemian in the sense of um, he said whatever he wanted. He didn't live in in the kind of suburban. We we lived in in West Hartford, which was a very suburban kind of conservative. Um, nothing particularly bad about it, but kind of stifling. And and that was the model for me. Um, and also a kindness there too. You know, um, and and that's what I experienced as as when I came to New York. And I started meeting older jazz musicians who were also mentor figures like Jimmy Cobb, the, the great Jimmy Cobb, the, the, the drummer, and uh, Junior Mance, the pianist who I studied with, um, different musicians I worked with. Uh, there, there, was a, there was a kindness there as well. Um, so it, pretty much nothing but positive in that sense for these older models, you know, which, which definitely I, I think was made me think, yeah, I, I, I want to do this. In your memoir, you talk about the difficulties you had um, stopping using heroin. You were addicted to heroin um, for many years. And, you know, recovering addicts are often told to avoid, like, the people they did drugs with or, like, or even the places where they did drugs right. or the kinds of places that they did drugs. Um, and jazz is a m music of the night and, and clubs and I was wondering if that can be difficult for you sometimes. I mean, looking at your touring schedule, you're often playing concert halls, but you also play at clubs. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, that time period I'm, I'm writing about when, when, when I was uh, in the addiction, um, there were only a few other jazz musicians who were getting into that. And I think it was more of something that was going on in the 90s with heroin. Um, you know, you had like supermodels doing it and A-list actors and it, and it was something. So that was something more that I found. Um, I was using heroin with, you know, NYU students and, and you know, people who were 
uh, these, you know, kind of privileged kids like myself. Um, so I didn't uh, get pulled too much into the classic, you know, idea that you have with, with heroin and, and jazz. I think that time had already sort of come and gone, you know. The idea that, like, Charlie Parker did heroin, so I should probably do Yeah, exactly, too. exactly. Is it hard to for you to listen to music that you recorded from that period? Not so much. I mean, wh- what I do hear um, is that um, it wasn't so much that I... I it impeded my playing, but I was kind of on autopilot um, in the sense that I wasn't developing. I had this natural thing I could do, and, and it even had something that was my own, but it wasn't developing. And I remember that I, I finally got clean. I, I, I went to a, a rehab in, in Los Angeles, and then I stayed there, and uh, I got my Steinway B that I still have now, and, and I had an apartment, and I started practicing and you know getting on my feet again. And it just flowed. All of a sudden I was writing and my playing was developing in, in a way that, uh, and then it just went from there. So it really only flourished. Um, so I can listen to that, but it, that, that's, that's what I'm aware of most of all is that it's kind of this autopilot, you know, in a way. You know, in your memoir, the young Brad Mildow comes across as a pretty unhappy person, someone not at home in the world. Um, but, you know, the book ends, I think you're like in your late tw- 20s, almost 30 at that point. Um, you're now in your early 50s. You're married. You have three kids. You couldn't ask for a more successful musical career. You're considered one of the most important jazz musicians of your generation. Like, have you found your place in the world? Are you? Do you feel more comfortable in your own skin? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, things are just easier as you get older. Thank goodness. Otherwise, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think um, yeah, I had a friend read the, the the manuscript early on, who was with me for a lot of that, and he said, "Wow, man, this is pretty depressing," because I remember we had a, a lot of good times too, you know. And and that certainly was the case too. So I I tried to describe some of the you know the ecstasy of hearing all this great music and some close friendships, but it's it's definitely a, a, a a dark story there. And, and um, yeah, thank goodness things haven't been dark. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed now, really. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Um, I was hoping that you would play a little bit of Golden Slumbers um, as we end this interview. This is a another Paul McCartney song that you describe in your liner notes as an amen-inducing ballad. <laughs> why, why did you pick this song? It's that zone of Paul where these, I think these... Um, kind of cadences that are, uh, yeah, they, it, it's like it has a church quality to it. You know, another, let it be, hey Jude, have that. Um, and then you see on his first solo record, uh, right after um, this one, uh, Abbey Road, uh, there's a tune, Maybe I'm Amazed, that's just a great one. Uh, that's the same kind of amen thing.
Well, Brad Maldow, thank you so much for being here today on Fresh Air. Thanks for having me, Sam. Brad Meldow spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger. His new album is called Your Mother Should Know. Brad Meldow plays the Beatles. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. I'm Terry Gross. Mm-hmm.